This week, we continue our voyage through the Gospel of John as we explore the theme, Living the Gospel. Last week, we were in the first chapter of the book, looking at verses 1 to 14, settling uh, most of the message, or settling most, on, on, the, on verse 14. For those that were unable to join us, we had some really good discussion on the entirety of that passage during the, the Wednesday Bible studies. And so when they're up and running again, when that's something that we're doing on the regular, I'd encourage you to join us and, and work deeper through the text. That'd be, that'd be great. The main area of focus last week was that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We looked at how Jesus came down from heaven, came into the muck and the mess of this rundown world and the dirty, embarrassing areas of our lives and made himself at home. But Christ, being God, is not content to live in the dark. And so he is at work in us, shaping us and molding us into who he wants us to be. Today we look at the beginning of Christ's ministry. It may be tempting to think that Jesus' ministry began as soon as he was born. He is God, after all. So he must have just hopped out of the manger, grew himself a beard, and started telling parables, right? Nah. Nah, he didn't, he didn't start his earthly ministry until he was 33 years old. Around that time is when he called a few of his disciples and got to teaching, preaching, and healing. Our text this morning is going to cover Jesus' first Miracle. It, it wasn't one where he healed anybody or he cast out demons or made the Pharisees look bad. No, instead, it's one where he made somebody look really good. In the text this morning, which is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, Jesus kicks off the start of his ministry with a bang by turning water into wine. Let's read our text this morning. John chapter 2. Verses 1 to 12, we read the word of the Lord. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. Let's end the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. And God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I was just beginning high school, one of my favorite things was being a part of the drama club. 
Growing up, I wanted to be one of two things, either an actor or a rock star. And drama seemed like a good place to start for the acting portion of that dream. I started in seventh grade and was given the lesser roles that you expect when you're the new guy. As the years went on, I got to be better and, and better and was given bigger and bigger roles until my sophomore year where I was the most experienced male member of the drama club. The rest of my friends had graduated and moved on to greener pastures, and so I was finally given, or being given, the lead roles. I remember the first day, or the first play that we did that year, our, our director decided he wanted to do something different, and so instead of performing on the stage in the gym of the high school, we put on the play in the middle of the gym floor. And so we arranged all the chairs, all the seats, in a circle around where the play would be taking place. So the audience was, was all around you. It was pretty cool. Uh, it's a pretty cool concept for a play. And I remember being really excited about it. Now, stage fright hadn't been really a thing for me. Previously, when the lights came on, that's when I tended to come alive. I would thrive in the spotlight. I remember standing in my costume at the edge of the dark gymnasium, seeing the audience that had assembled for the opening night of our production. Their backs were to me as they sat facing the center of the gym where all of our props were set up and where the lights were shining. And then it was time. I made my way through the chairs and plopped myself down on the bench located in the little fake park in the middle of that gymnasium. And as my rear touched the wood of the bench and the lights shone in my face, I promptly forgot all of my lines. And in the following milliseconds, I went over in my head just how incredibly embarrassing this whole night was going to turn out. I worked hard for this. I'd, I'd done my best for this. I had spent hours, hours memorizing lines and going over the play. I had put my blood, sweat, and tears. Well, maybe not blood and tears, but it's part of the saying, so it, it fits. But I had at least put a bunch of sweat equity into making sure this whole night went well, and people thought well of me. I wanted to be a star. And here I was, sitting silently on the bench, acting like it was all part of the play, while my heart is just beating, and I can, it's like I can hear my heartbeat echoing off the walls of the silent gymnasium. Sometimes we put a lot of effort into something, only to watch it all fall apart. Take, for example, the bridegroom in our text this morning. Weddings back in that day weren't something you just threw together. Eloping wasn't a thing. You spent a ton of time planning and preparing for your wedding, and it was kind of a first impression of sorts. You wanted people to think that you were doing well, that you can provide for yourself and for your new bride. You wanted people to see you standing on your own two feet, capable and respectable. And one of the ways that you did that was by not running out of drink at your wedding. If you weren't prepared enough to make sure everyone would have their fill at the wedding. How could anyone be trusting or trust you to be prepared enough to take care of yourself, much less your wife, in the days ahead? Running out of wine at a wedding was embarrassing and shameful. This wasn't supposed to happen. No self-respecting bridegroom would ever let that happen, and yet that is exactly what is about to happen to the poor chap in our text this morning. It's his wedding, and they're running out of drink. It's about to be a disaster. All of his time spent in preparation is about to be meaningless because everything is about to fall apart. 
And on some level, on some level, we can relate to that, right? How many times have we spent hours studying for a test only to sit there on the day, read the questions, and tangibly feel the answers you had worked so hard to remember just slip away? Maybe you worked hard at a a thankless job for years so that you might get that promotion and, and do what you actually are excited to do, only to have that promotion given to someone else, maybe even someone from a different company, who had to be trained in all the things that you had spent years learning. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a dream, maybe it's something you're creating, writing, or building, and you spend so much time and effort And then at one point, at at some point, it becomes clear that it's just not going to happen, that it's all falling apart. Maybe it's knowing that you're falling apart on the inside. Just as it can be frustratingly depressing when the information you spend hours studying slips through the cracks in your brain right when you need them, So it is also frustratingly depressing when you resolve to stop participating in that particular sin you have found way too much comfort in. And your resolve dissolves, and you find yourself right back where you had promised yourself and promised God you would never be again. We want to be good. We want to do well. We want to please God. We want to be worthy of his love. We want to give God reasons to save us. We want to give him reasons to choose us, and we work hard at it. We do our best to resist temptation. We do our best to shrug off and ignore those things for, those desires for things that we know we're not supposed to do. We spend so much time and energy on it, and so it can be absolutely devastating when our resolve, our intentions, our well-laid plans fall apart, and we betray ourselves, and we slink back to that sin that God gives or sorry, that that sin that gives us all the wrong kinds of comfort. And the self-aware part of us goes, so what now? What now? Where do we go from here? How could God love me when I'm not worthy of that love? How could God care for me when I struggle so much to care for myself? What do we do when we find ourselves in the shoes of the bridegroom at this wedding feast? His embarrassment is about to become incredibly public. All of his guests, all of his family, all the people whose opinion of him matter so much to him are gathered in this room, and they are about to realize how much of a failure he is. He worked so hard for this wedding to happen, and everyone is about to realize that he didn't do enough, that he's a disgrace, that it's all going to fall apart. I love this story. You've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, somehow in the know like mothers are, right? We aren't told what her relationship to this bride and groom is, but but somehow Mary knows that it's about to go down. The wine is running out, and so she goes up to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. It's like when your wife says, we're out of milk. And you can take that as the statement it is, or or you can know that there's a suggestion behind the statement. What she's saying is, we're out of milk. But what what she's suggesting is that I go get some. And Jesus picks this up and, and echoes the cry of every husband's heart when he responds, 
Why do you involve me? I love it. But what I love even more is that he follows it up with, my hour has not yet come. And we may read that at first blush and think, he's saying that the hour has not yet come for his ministry to start, and Mary, his mom, is doing what moms are so good at doing and is pushing him into it. But if we read it like that, then we're not taking the rest of the Gospel of John into perspective. Because whenever Jesus references how his hour has not yet come, he's talking about his death. And so this text is more accurately read as Jesus going, well, it's not yet my time to die, so I can do this thing that you are suggesting that I do. Next time Karen asks me to go get some milk, I'm going to be like, well, I guess I'm not dead yet, so I can go run to the store. And when Mary turns to the servants that are around and says, do whatever he tells you, and they do. And Jesus has the servants fill six of these 20 to 30 gallon walk containers with water. And then the master of the banquet, kind of like the wedding planner, comes over and tastes the water to find out that it's no longer water, but has turned into wine. Crisis has been averted. Now there's a lot for us to take in here, and I want to do some of it justice. First, I think it's worth, worthwhile to look at the disciples. These guys haven't known Jesus all that long, right? They haven't spent a ton of time with him. He's basically just recruited them, and they come with him to this wedding, and they're sitting there listening to this exchange between Mary and their teacher, and then the directions that their teacher, that Jesus, gives to the servants, and, and then they get to see the results. In many ways, I look at this and see how Jesus was training his disciples. They didn't realize it at the time. But during this training session, the servants of the house are acting in the roles that the disciples will soon fill. Jesus uses the servants to carry out the miracle, just as Jesus will use the disciples to carry out other miracles, like the feeding of the 5,000. It's not like there are many people that even know this miracle takes place, that water was turned into wine. It's Jesus, Mary, the disciples, and the servants. And man, isn't that just how it goes sometimes? Often there isn't a massive audience that gets to look behind the curtain and see how God is working in the lives of his people. Often it's, it's just a few that see the changes taking place, the, the heart desiring things that it didn't desire before. We can't all see how God is at work changing hearts and saving souls. But to the people that know, to the people that see it, to the people that God lets behind the curtain, it's life-changing and encouraging. So Jesus is using the servants at the feast to train, to disciple his disciples, his followers. And I think that's pretty cool. Another element of the story that I think sometimes gets overlooked is the sheer amount of wine that Jesus miracles here. And, and yes, I'm using miracles as a verb, because I'm not sure how else to describe it. We're talking 110 to 160 gallons. There are other areas in this gospel that the writer tells us of Jesus creating an abundance. The feeding of the 5,000. The nets overflowing with fish and threatening to capsize the boat. And we'll get to both of those stories uh, a bit later, right? Much later in, in, in this series. But the reality is, we don't know how big the baskets of leftovers from feeding all those people actually were or the exact size of the nets that were overflowing. 
But here we have a tangible measurement to wrap our brains around. We can understand the excess of that many gallons of wine. And so, in this, we get a pretty clear picture of how Jesus gives, how God provides. God provides in abundance. As Matt read for us from Ephesians 3.20 this morning, Jesus is able to provide for us more than abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or think. And while it had been pretty cool for those in the know to see all this taking place, could it have meant more to anyone at that feast than it did to the bridegroom? When we left him, this guy was freaking out. His life was about to fall apart. Everyone was about to realize how big of a colossal failure he actually was. The skeletons in his closet were about to come pouring out, and he was going to be exposed. His preparations were not enough. He wasn't good enough. And then up walks the master of the feast. The bridegroom's stomach must have just been turning. His knees getting weak as he waited for the rebuke, for the embarrassment that must be coming. How do you think it felt for him to hear what the master of the banquet had to say? Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best till now. No condemnation. No rebuke. No public shaming. Instead, he is given what he does not deserve. He is given what he has not earned. My friends, church, this is the gospel. Just as the bridegroom was given credit for what Jesus had done, so are we. His failure was in his preparation and provision. Our failure is in our inability to be perfect and our continually falling into sin, resulting in hurting our God. Our sin separates us from him, making it so that he can't have the relationship with us that he desires to have, that he created us so that we could have. And so since we are unable to fix it, since we are unable to keep things from falling apart, God sent us Jesus. His son who was there in creation and who through all was created. He sent his son to come to earth to be born as a human, to humble himself and to take on the frailty of humanity that one day he might save us, that one day he might repair the brokenness that leads to our continual falling apart. When that day came, when, when Jesus was betrayed, falsely accused and unjustly condemned, on that day, he took a cross up a hill, and on top of that hill, he was nailed to that cross and left to die. But Jesus didn't just hang there with the physical torment of nails through his hands and his feet, and the crown of thorns pushed into his brow. He hung there with the torment of every sin that had ever and would ever be committed. He hung there with that burden, that weight on his shoulders. For on the cross, Christ became sin for us in our place. And when he died on that cross, he died for our sin in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved. But Christ did not stay dead. 
Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him, when we put our faith in him, then we are credited with his righteousness. The goodness of Jesus, the abundance of his righteousness is imputed to us. Like, like the bridegroom was given credit for the abundance of impeccable wine, so we are given credit for the abundance of the impeccable works, the completed, perfect righteousness of Christ. And all of this through faith, not through works. For if it was up to our works, it would all fall apart. But since it is all reliant on Christ's work, it holds fast forever. I love this story. Because in this story, I see the grace and mercy of a loving Savior poured out over one who desperately needed it desperately needs it. I see the grace and mercy poured out over me. I see it poured out over you, over all who believe. But God doesn't just leave us there, does he? No, like the disciples, he is training us. He is working in us, moving through us, so that we would not be content in a life that is falling apart, but that we might better resist the sin that pulls at us. As I sat there on that wooden bench in that gymnasium all those years ago, with all those eyes and all the lights on me, having had all of my lines disappear and feeling lost and dreading the embarrassment that was sure to come, I heard someone shift in the seat behind me. The director of the play, the man who had spent all these hours with me and the rest of the cast on this production, the man who had sacrificed time and energy into each and every one of us, was sitting behind me. And I heard his voice, quietly but clearly, state the first few words of my first line. And it was like the floodgates opened. And I remembered. And though there were other times that I stumbled through my words, and one time in particular that I jumped ahead in the script and, and was forced to say one particular set of lines a few times, the play went really well. And there in the background was the director helping us along when we struggled, giving nods of encouragement as we excelled, and speaking words when we needed help. Our God does not abandon us to the works that he has called us to do. Whether it's filling jugs with water, or loving our neighbor, or proclaiming the truth of the gospel, or being a caring spouse, a doting parent, or heading to the store to buy milk. God knows that our lives are falling apart, and he does not abandon us to the journey. He does not always spare us some hard steps. He doesn't always shield us from the pain, but he never leaves us or abandons us. His strength and comfort are ever-present, and all we must do is trust in Him. Rely on Him, have faith in Him, and rest in all that He has done for us, all that He has given us. Let us live in the gospel, knowing who we can rest in and trust in when life is falling apart, and knowing who has saved us from the part of life that we, in our power, will never be able to fix. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, and merciful God that we serve. Amen.